G'day, I'm Dan Fox. This is Farmers Helping Farmers, the podcast. Proudly brought to you by Vic No-Till. If we don't farm to maximise those natural processes that have been happening for billions of years, then we just keep working backwards. Today I'm catching up with Phil Peterson, who is passionate about rebuilding soil health. In the many conversations I've had with Phil, this passion has come through very clearly because he has seen for a long time that there will be an immense benefit to farmers and the greater population by increasing soil organic carbon. Phil has been at the grassroots of those involved in agriculture asking more questions about the environment and how we can improve the health of our soil, which will in turn improve both the yield and quality of the crops and pastures that we grow. This has led Phil to a role with Lone Bio, helping farmers improve their soils and their bottom line. Thanks Phil for joining me at my home here. Uh, we've had a lot of good discussions over the last couple of months, probably worthy of a podcast episode, but I'm glad that you're here today and we're actually recording this one. So I'm hoping that we'll capture some good discussion like we, we have had in the last couple of months. I wanted to start by asking you about your journey in, in agriculture and how it brought you to the role of the senior carbon agronomist working with Lone Bio. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It has been a bit of a journey. So uh, back in the 90s, I started with Incitec. We worked as agronomists. So I learned a lot about soil nutrition and well, certainly fertilising crops and pastures through that process. And I think I was with Incitec for nine years or something prior to their joining, joining up with um, Pivot. I then went consulting and working for some retail stores that developed into working for growers private, as a private consultant. And I guess it was at that point in time, we had a dry spell in the late 90s. Growers were wanting to try a few different things. The blinkers that I had previously had, had to open up to accept other ideas. And so then I started looking at other opportunities using uh, back then, funky liquids like fulvic acid and stuff with urea. Now it's a lot more mainstream. Those sorts of things just changed my paradigm and started to develop different tools. I then went through a period I worked for Yara for quite a few years. Uh, that was very good, very good company. Also learnt lots of new stuff and then worked for a few startup liquid fertiliser companies and I'm now with uh, carbon, uh, growing carbon in soils with Lone Bio. So, Guy Webb, who's one of the founders of Loam, I've known for approximately 20 odd years and been following his progress. I'm now working with Guy. I like the idea, people coming to you and, and asking about a few different things and exploring other ideas other than what probably mainstream was, was pushing at the time. One conversation that, that sticks in my mind that we've had over well, probably a couple of weeks ago, I suppose, is on the on the new F word in farming at the moment, which is uh, flaxleaf fleabane, one of the best weeds, I think, or one of the strongest weeds we've ever seen. One idea is to, to kill it, uh, get rid of it because it is a weed, takes yeah. moisture, takes nutrients. If you look at it and where it is so prevalent, it seems to be, I suppose, I've got a few issues with the soil. And then something that you said there the other day was, it's there for a reason. Do you want to just extrapolate on that a little bit? There is a succession of plants. They all do a particular job for the root structure or what nutrients they might have in their, in their makeup. So some plants, for instance, 
we know them as high, high in copper, like Patterson's Curse. But it's high in copper because it's actually dragging copper from down deep because the surface layers are low in copper. Things like saffron thistles, generally it's been accepted that they grow where there's high nitrogen in the soil. There's actually high nitrates and it's, it's because there's an imbalance between nitrates and calcium in the soil, in my opinion. If you get the balance right on your nutrients, then different species grow. And with the flea bane situation, yes, you're right, it does have a massive taproot. So after a process where you've had a lot of flooding or water laying over paddocks, which has weight, water has weight, the same as lots of elements, um, so it adds compaction to the soil, it deoxygenates the soil, so you're losing porosity and oxygen space in the soil. So a tap-rooted plant will start to open the soil up. Over time, the succession will be that once that soil has changed its parameters, then other plants will grow and more likely you'll get grasses to grow there. Now that might be, in your cropping situations, might still be annual ryegrass, which is not necessarily your friend either. It's growing there because you have high nitrates in your soil. And if you change the balance between nitrogen or nitrate and calcium, availability in the soil, then you'll get less ryegrass. So by way of example, I had, it was what I was telling you the other day, I had, after the drought, three years of drought, I had no stock on the farm, a few horses. First thing that grew was Patterson's Curse. And uh, for my whole ag career, I've been fighting Patterson's Curse and hating that purple weed. And over the years, we've, we've, um, there was some weevils and so forth that had been released to eat the plant. They had built up on the farm. We didn't really have any problems with Patterson's Curse, hardly a plant anywhere. Then the drought, there was no plants. The weevils died out because they don't have a food source. First thing comes back is Patterson's Curse. So to get the weevils to come back, I needed to grow the Patterson's Curse. And then I also figured that they also have a big taproot and were doing a job. So the second year after the drought, I didn't have any Patterson's Curse and lots of clover and grass grew. Paddo's fixed the soil. Paddo has done, and I didn't spray it, which I've got to say was very hard <laughs> not to spray it. Yeah, you're the only farmer with a purple paddock, I suppose, <laughs> in the district. So. I hated it. Yeah, so the, I just think they have a purpose. So Now, in saying all that, I'm, I'm not some herbalist or uh, hippie and think we just got to let it all go to, to be the way it is, but because you've got a business to run and you've got to create productivity. Thinking through the process, if you can remove the flea bane in your situation later on in its cycle, let it do its taproot thing and then take it out by whatever means that is. I asked you the question, is those flea bone stalks an issue in your crop or has it actually died? Well, to be honest, where we saw it last year, uh, we had lentils using them as a trellis. Yeah. And it was actually better. We had better crop where the flea bone was, even though used water over the summer. The lentils used it as a trellis. It was actually a better thing for the lentil crop to have the flea bane there yeah. to get it up and, and get the disease out of it, uh, expose it to more sunlight, and which resulted in more flowering, more pods. And it actually changed my thinking a lot about how we're managing our crops as well. With lentils that want to lay down and get full of disease, particularly in a wet year, well, we should be growing a trellis for them. So in our system, we can't use the stubble as a, as a trellis because we roll it down with the disc seeder at sowing time. So we're thinking about, you know, as growing a companion plant to trellis them up, like a, a lupin or something like that, that not 
not going to be the primary crop. The lentils are still the primary crop, but give it something to grow on. And yeah, that's that's one thing that we, well, I suppose the the weed brought about a new way of thinking. But having a tap rooted crop there in conjunction with the lentils as well is certainly bringing diversity underneath the ground as well in terms of root structures and and hopefully we don't generate the need for that weed by only growing lentils that, that are very fine rooted and, and that sort of thing. Dan, if you grew oats with the lentils, yep, and I'm not necessarily, I'm not saying this is the answer, but clearly there's varietal lengths and, and, and timings of plant sowing and harvest and then you, there's, you know, if you take it right through, you've got to be able to grade the seed differences out you know, oats is a, generally has pretty good structure, particularly if you're putting calcium on it as a foliar. It's got a really massive big root structure. It's very good for biology in the soil. Maybe that can work as a, a trellis. Could be as well, yeah. What about if, and it's not gonna work in every summer, but what about if you, and if the timing doesn't work out, what about if you actually grew the oats early on the first rain, late January, February, grew the oats early, sprayed them out but left the stubble and then planted the lentils into the oat stubble. So it doesn't actually grow out the oats. Yep. But you've left a trellis there and it was green and growing through part of the year where there might not be anything growing. I reckon it would work depending on row spacing. Um, yep. In our context, I don't think it would because of our row spacing so narrow and we'd roll it all down. So. Yeah, right. Um, okay. Yep. I think for us, we we need to grow the grow the trellis in the same crop. That's not saying that that wouldn't work for someone else. On 15 inch row spacings, you could potentially grow a summer cover crop that would then act as a trellis for your winter crop. What time do you, what time of the year do you sow your lentils? I haven't worked that out yet. So <laughs> I think this year it's probably gonna be next week. Last year it was June. We just, we haven't had enough experience here to figure out when is the right time. But rye corn might be another one you could use instead of oats. Could be. I think rye corn's, rye corn's got a very big potential here, I think, as a cover crop. Um, certainly depending on rotation as well, but we're doing uh, something out of the ordinary. Well, we're doing a lot of things out of the ordinary, but hmm. um, sowing chickpeas in late August, early September. Yeah trying not to grow bush, we're trying to grow grain. So we will sow them in that period of time so that they're running into the spring and, and the very, very fast crop when you put them in or sow them in that position. You've got the advantage of not having a big canopy to keep the disease out of, got the advantage of not having a big canopy to try and penetrate light into to get potting and flowering to be successful. You've got longer days, uh, warmer days, and they're a heat tolerant flower. Much more heat tolerant than lupins and lentils and faba beans. And so if you do get that hot October, then you, you're out of that. Well, it, it, it's able to handle that stress better uh, than, than what some of these other legumes would do. So, and we're trying to get them out of, out of a frost period as well. So like in our context, we're half of our country's frost exposed, so we're trying to find a legume that is A, profitable, and B, will, will grow effectively down in those low areas. And yeah, I think, well, from what we've learnt the last couple of years, chickpeas certainly have got that, that fit, but what you do with the rest of the year before you put the chickpeas in in August, 
we sort of haven't really worked that one out yet, but I think... So, so that could be your oats? Oats or, or rye corn, you know, a multi-species mix, um, all those sorts of things. We're trialling buckwheat this year. We've got 90 hectares of buckwheat in that will go to chickpeas in August, so we'll harvest them in middle of May uh, or end of May and then, you know, a couple of months fallow and then straight into chickpeas again. So certainly adds to the bank balance, but it doesn't add to the cover that's going to like the rye corn, if you grew rye corn in the buckwheat's place and it would smother the weeds and and probably act a bit more as a mineral accumulator and that sort of thing. So hmm. I think we're still limited by what's between our ears um, <laughs> and we just haven't worked out how our rotation is going to work best and what cover crops we can fit in and what grows best before other things and getting that cropping sequence right I think is pretty important because what you do this year is going to impact on what you do in the following year. So And the year after. And the year after, yeah. Everything we do in farming has got a legacy, hasn't it? So, yeah. Including letting flea bane grow and as ugly as what it is, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it could potentially have a big legacy that we don't, don't know about yet. So, so mm. I wanted to get back to where did loam start and what, what's their focus been? Approximately 10 or 12 years ago, Professor McGee, working at Sydney University, one of his students discovered that if you added a dark septate endophyte, which is a type of fungi, with the rhizobia to clover, after 12 weeks there was a significant carbon build in the root zone of that clover plant, subclover plant, compared to one that didn't have the dark septate endophyte with it. He did a few presentations on that that particular work and one of those presentations, Guy Webb, who I mentioned earlier was the founder of uh, Loam, heard the uh, presentation, got really interested. Uh, Guy's always had a focus on trying to build organic carbon and organic matter in soils and they got talking. Uh, Long story short there, Soil Sequest was started, which is a not-for-profit business uh, that Guy is a founder of. So they started doing research, further research on the uh, following on from Professor McGee, uh, who had by about 10 years ago retired. A loam was developed from Saucy Quest about three years ago, and it became the commercial arm of the research that had been taking place for the previous seven or so years. Most people understand there is there is this number that you're measuring on your soil test which shows organic carbon. Some soil tests show it as organic matter, but as I understand it, it is all analysed at the lab as organic carbon. You know, what is that organic carbon num- number in comparison to what you're trying to do as far as, say, build carbon and, and even con- if you're considering a carbon project? So organic carbon is like an indicator for soil health. If you have declining soil carbon over the, your, over the years, say you've been looking at soil tests over the last 10 or 15 years and your organic carbon percentage is going down, ultimately that is telling you your soil health is going down. As you increase soil carbon, you will increase water infiltration, you'll increase water storage, uh, you'll increase mineralisation. In the last two springs, there have been late wet springs, which is unusual for um, a lot of areas of uh, eastern Australia. 
that extra water storage and extra water penetration may not have been your best friend. And that's why you've got a lot of bog tractors and headers. But generally speaking, in our environment, that's what we're wanting to try and do is increase that water that falls from the sky and, and, and record what, try and build on what is stored in the soil. So we all have rain gauges and measure what falls, but we should be measuring what's actually retained. Mm, absolutely. Loam has developed this process where they've discovered and then further developed different specific bits of biology, beneficial biology, mainly fungi, that partner with the crop in a mutualistic behaviour. They have a trade between each other. As the plant photosynthesises and makes sugars, there is carbon in sugar. It then feeds a portion of that carbon as exudates out through the roots to the biology that live in the root zone in a healthy plant soil combination. So then that fungi takes that carbon and stores it in stable forms in the soil where it is not mineralized, it's not uh, hydrolyzed and it's not uh, oxidized. So it stores it typically through fractionation where we can see that it's stored in um, microaggregates, which Inside this microaggregate, the pores are very small. The roots and even mycelium from VAM can't access those pores, spaces there. It's actually anaerobic within the microaggregate, so it doesn't oxidise and water can't get in there. Pore space is too small. The carbon is stable in those forms. So we're talking hundreds to thousands of years. So there is still some labile carbon and you need the labile carbon which is the stuff that cycles, it's part of the liquid carbon cycle. It's broken down by biology, particularly bacteria in the soil, turns it into carbon dioxide gas. There is nitrogen that is also extracted from the sugar that goes into the, the biology of the fungi and the bacteria. So the carbon dioxide gas is either reabsorbed by the plant roots, it's emitted or it's emitted from the soil and then absorbed by green growing plants above that. But if your soil is bare, then it goes to the atmosphere. So over the last 20 or so years, as we've gone through, we've slowly progressed away from cultivation and so forth, where we used to cultivate a lot more in the 70s and 80s than we do now. We were just exhausting lots of carbon dioxide out of the soil into the atmosphere. That's why our, carbon, our soil levels of organic carbon have dropped through cultivation, chemical use, various methods of farming that we're doing. We've seen that here. Dad, back in the 80s and 90s, having, having deep end tests, you know, having you know, 18 inches of, of nice topsoil and yes. you know, move forward 30 years and we've got six inches now. That brown colour has had to have gone somewhere and it's gone into the atmosphere. So and It changes the efficiencies of the biology or of the processes in the soil. So our efficiencies or an ability of a plants to plants and soils in combination to mineralise nutrients that are in the soil. Years ago, when I was with Incitec, we were doing, getting, you know, harvesting eight tonne crops at Wollombean in trials on 80 to 120 kgs of urea. Maybe it was a little bit more nitrogen than that. My memory states there wasn't much nitrogen compared to now. Now they're doing like 400 kgs of urea in those areas, but we haven't increased our crop yield by four times. So there's got to be, that's got to indicate a lack of efficiency. And there's a lot of nutrients that are out of balance in our plant and soil combination that if you apply them in any one year and look at the trial results of that application, be it a trace element or for instance, calcium, you may not increase your yield in that year. 
that gets discounted off as, well, that doesn't work, it doesn't pay, I'm not going to bother doing it. But if you do it for a few years and you change the mythologies that's going on in the soil plant process, then you do start to get efficiency gains. And there's plenty of farmers that done this process and now get away with using less fertiliser, basically half the nitrogen that their neighbours are using and they get the same yield results and as good, if not better quality. Well, when you look at it in full circle, you've got indicator weeds such as Patterson's Kerth for, for copper. Um, one round here, a really good one is heliotrope um, yep. for copper. Uh, we used to have a lot of heliotrope on our place. We've been using copper now for probably five or six years now as a trace element in our foliar applications. One thing that I have noticed is that we've got very few heliotrope plants growing now. So, And obviously that's turns around into, or we see that as the indication is that we've got enough copper in our, our system now. It didn't work the first year, but over a period of four or five years, it has. we've got enough copper in our system now that we probably don't need to be applying as much as what we have been so to get the same result. So I guess that's the same with, with all of our, our nutrients that we're, we're applying. So. Yes, that, that's right. There's a balance ratios, key ratios that need to be adhered to. I just want to touch on that PhD that you mentioned there before that, that started Loam's journey. Cross over into looking at how we can actually fix our soils or fix uh, organic carbon in our soils the fastest. Obviously there was something to do with subclover and that must indicate that legumes are, are pretty important. What do you see as being some of the best rotations and, and best farming practices that we can do to actually improve our, our carbon stocks. Okay, so in a cropping situation where you're doing mainly cropping and very little pasture, uh, the inclusion of a legume in the rotation that still fits the, the financial cycle of your farm, that's a key component, of course, but carbon and nitrogen go together. So if you can build nitrogen in your soil in organic forms, like you would get from legumes, then you will also build carbon and retain more carbon in your soil. To build carbon, there is a ratio that has been discovered by other people such as Kirkby and Co, that you need a particular ratio of nitrogen, phosphorus and sulphur to build carbon in your soil. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to add those nutrients to build carbon because the nutrients are quite often in place in the soil, just not in plant available forms. So if you can build, uh, get the right plants and the right biology in process, then the biology will re release the tied up nutrients that the plants can't access and makes it available for the plant to function. And then there is this cycle of nutrient within the soil, from the soil to the plant and plant back to the soil. There is a, a very typical carbon nitrogen ratio that's required to build compost and you want to start a compost pile at about 30 to 1 carbon to nitrogen. By the end of that composting cycle, it's going to be something like 8 carbon to 1 nitrogen. In that process of breaking down some of the carbon as expired as carbon dioxide and others, other bits are just tied up in other forms. So the same process happens in our soil, just at different, the ratios are much the same, but it's a process. If we don't farm to maximise those natural processes that have been happening for billions of years, then we just keep working backwards. 
Unfortunately, carbon dioxide is an odourless, clear gas, so we don't see it expiring from our fields, which is unfortunate. Where if it was, as uh, Webby says, if it was a purple gas, we'd all see it and we might change our practices. But you just got to understand that that's what's happening. And I guess there's papers out there. People have done the research. We're going to we're starting to do some stuff on those lines to measure what is actually emitting from different management processes and practices stubble retention over stubble incorporation over stubble burning cultivation with a shallow disc compared to a bigger disc or a tine all these different processes are going to affect carbon dioxide emissions emissions yeah. are probably not a bad thing in the long run because that the emissions coming is is obviously coming from our liable pool you know obviously some carbon is designed to stay in the soil like how your endophyte is storing carbon in, in that microaggregate. Yep. But there's, I think there's a reason why we had, uh, or why plants have, have engineered themselves to have the stomata on the bottom side of the leaf is uh, to actually you know, capture that, that carbon that is emitted from the soil. It, it is a carbon cycle, it's, it's not linear. Um, Correct. Probably you know, a lot of things in nature are cyclical and. I guess the carbon cycle is, is the same thing. So emissions may not be so bad if, if we only use it in the right way, not the wrong way. Yeah, so like we were saying before, you know, you do one or two years of trials and um, depending on the climatic conditions of those trials and the soil, where, you, where your soil was at the start, it's going to dictate whether adding that mineral of manganese or boron or calcium or whatever it is makes a response in that year to affect your yield. Having green growing plants for as long as you can through the year is how it was originally, I'm going to say designed, but for billions of years, that is how it has been. Now, I know we have hot summers and not, you know, it's not always times when things are growing, but at every rainfall event in a natural system, there is green feed is produced. So there are living plants just waiting for that next bit of moisture. Our farming systems have gone away from that because it was discovered that if you have clean, clear fallows, you can serve moisture and you have better crop. And those, that trial, is, that stuff is done year after, you know, one year at a time or only two or three years at a time. So then if someone's looking at cover crop inclusions, they're only looking at one or two years. And so it might not work in those two years because you've got to build from a low base. But in time... There's plenty of people around that have stored, they store more water and have better soils because they've had more green growing plants. By way of example, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this to you before, but I was doing some work down along the Murray River last year, the last few years, and you could go down there, I could take you to farms where we could do a soil test and there are 0 to 10 organic carbon percentages like 5.6%. Yes, they have irrigation. Yes, they have green growing plants all year round. But that's what happens when you have green growing plants all year round and you've got moisture. We're in a different system up here, I get it. Dry land, broad acre crops, but you can build the soil organic carbon and therefore make the soil healthier. We're only limited by what's between our ears, but probably our context too, and our context involves what has happened to the soil in the last hundred years as well. So the farming system, and, and I'll certainly put my hand up, I'm doing it as well, you know, the summer fallow to grow a, a winter crop has been brought about because of, I, sp I suppose, been engineered in a, in a context where we have have ploughed the soil and destroyed a lot of soil structure 
for the last 50 to 100 years. And what we're sort of finding now, the longer we're in the system, we're actually infiltrating water faster to deeper depths as well, which we weren't seeing five years ago and 10 years ago and, and even um, you know, people that have been in the game, in the disseeding game for a lot longer than I have, uh, are seeing rainfall events you know, infiltrate to, to 50, 60, 70 centimetres from dry soil. Whereas when our soil structure is no good, it gets stuck in that top 10 and then tends to evaporate off again. I think that's where you know, the natural evolution of, of soil structure gets you to is you've got improved soil structure, which means improved uh, rainfall infiltration, which then allows you to grow a crop for longer because you've got more water at depth and all these things allow you, the, the healthier your soil gets, the more it allows you to actually expand your growing growing window on a given given um, average rainfall year. So I think we're probably only limited by A, what's between our ears, and, and B, getting our soils to improve. You know how we were talking earlier, Dan, about um, what's the best way to grow carbon or make your soils healthier? Any farmer that's over 40, 50s, will know how to do it because they all used to do it. And we used to grow crop for two or three years and then we'd grow a pasture for two, three, four, five years, generally with some sort of legume in it, clover all loosen, more modernly, more recently loosen everywhere. But we would take a paddock out of crop because it was tired. There's no uh, scientific term for tired soil, but it was, it was tired. So we'd put it in a pasture, it would grow clover, it would feed sheep, it would cattle, whatever it is, and essentially we're building soil carbon levels up and nutrient levels in the soil, and then we'd bring it back in a crop. That's what we've got to do. We've got to go back to those, those processes where we can and if it fits your soil environment and your financial budget. Not saying everyone's got to go back to pastures, but we know how it worked. We need to adapt to that. One of the other questions you asked me there before, I was going to say, one of the biggest problems I think we've got in our soil these days is porosity or lack of porosity. Yeah, we have pH issues and in some places we have salinity issues and you know, some soil types, we've got sodic soil and high magnesiums and so forth, but just about in every soil that's farmed, there is porosity issues. That's pore space or lack of pore space. So if you don't have pore spaces in the soil that you should have, then you can't store water. The water can't infiltrate. You don't have oxygen in the soil. If you don't have oxygen in the soil, you don't have biology in the soil, except the bad biologies that we don't want because they're anaerobic. If we, we need to concentrate on how to open up the soil and that doesn't mean plough it because that opens it up very temporarily, but it also breaks down soil structure. So then it all packs down tighter than it was. No one's fault of their own. That's just what we knew at the time. 50, 70 years ago, we started ploughing the soil because we thought we needed to open up the soil and then every year as the more we ploughed it, the more we have to plough it because we're packing it up through smaller and smaller soil yep. beds. So we get less and less porosity. So, you know, it's, it's grandfather saying, see, I told you we had to plough it because you have to plough it because we've turned it into that. Well, you work it just fine enough like talcum powder and then you get another rain on it, it sits again and then you just got to go back and rip it all open again. So. Yeah, so I think we, uh, there's, we can say lots of things about carbon and 
all the things we probably should be doing in farming, but every decision that a farmer makes, I reckon he should be considering asking himself, is this improving my soil health? Is this helping my soil porosity? Soil porosity is the thing that's, I think, that dictates how healthy our soil is, how much it infiltrates, how much life is in it. Yeah, you can see some soils that are, you know, set like concrete, and I know there's no life in it, so. And that's, you know, ask our agronomist, well, how do you farm in that? And he says, it's easy, you just buy soluble nutrition. We've got to a point where we've, having to increase our, our soluble nutrition levels, which I think in the last 20 years have gone through the roof, because we've been faced with this issue of poor porosity in our soil, poor soil organic carbon levels because we've been burning them out. So it's one of those feedback loop from hell things that the more you do it, the worse it gets. So the more you've got to do it. You know, we've been involved in a 70, 70 odd year experiment that hasn't worked. Absolutely. <laughs> we always finish our podcast with a bit of 2020 hindsight. If you could go back and tell yourself, your younger self one thing, what would it be? It would be, don't be too proud to learn. Read, listen, observe, try and learn something new every day. We all think we know what we're doing and we all think we have the answers, but that puts us into a paradigm. Then we find answers to match our paradigm. We need to think outside that paradigm as often as we can and be open-minded. The more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know. Thank you very much, Phil, for joining me today. It's been a very, very interesting conversation. I do love it, every conversation that we have, because you tend to introduce me to a lot of new things that I don't know. I learn a lot every day that I have a chat to you. So thank you very much for joining me and um, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Dan, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's always good to learn stuff from you guys as well. Thank you for listening to the Vic No-Till Farmers Helping Farmers podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends about our podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. The more people who join the conversation, the more we learn from each other. Subscribe to Farmers Helping Farmers on your favourite podcast app and connect with Vic No-Till by becoming a member or following us on Twitter, Facebook or YouTube.